Hey everyone, Marisa here, one of the Ascension producers for Ask Father Josh. In this week's regular episode of Ask Father Josh, Father Josh interviewed Hudson Biblo on same-sex attraction, holy friendships, and healing from pornography. In that episode, Father Josh announced that we would be releasing Hudson's complete testimony later in the week. So today, we are sharing with you Hudson's full story. Just as a heads up, Hudson's story involves some very mature themes. So if you have little ears around you, you might want to save this one for another time. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, shoot us your questions and feedback at askfatherjosh at ascensionpress.com or sign up to join our email list by texting askfatherjosh to 33777. God bless. It's a real honor to be here. This talk is called Coming Home Catholic and how I was loved back to life because this short story is, uh, according to the world, is what I said upstairs earlier, is that I shouldn't be here in the church at all. According to the world, I shouldn't be here in the church at all because same-sex attractions are part of my story as are transgender inclinations. And some of my earliest memories, I remember even like uh, wanting to be a girl and all that kind of stuff. So while young, I remember, and especially as I'm looking back now, I remember that I, do, I did struggle to relate to other kids in total. As an after effect, I also struggled to relate with boys. The chasm between me and the other boys increased over time as we developed and we grew. And a longing in my heart to belong to the pack of boys, right, which is a, a natural developmental stage for boys as they're around age 12 or whatever to like belong to the pack. That longing only increased and that still increased, even though by then I already was, I was long since daydreaming about being a girl. So even though I wanted to be a girl, I still wanted to belong with the boys. At that time, by grade six, I remember seeing like, okay, my guy friends or acquaintances were starting to see the girls as the, the mystery, the other. And to me, the boys were still the mystery. Because I didn't, I didn't know how to relate to them in a way that made them not a mystery to me. And they were a desirable mystery to me. I remember thinking to myself, well, maybe I'm supposed to belong with the boys like, like that, like a boyfriend, thinking those kinds of things too, right? So there's, there's, there's like gender identity things, questions that I'm questioning, and also the idea of attractions, like should I be attracted like this? So while this chasm is developing, it's also made me growing closer with girls because I was hanging out with the girls more because I wasn't hanging out with the boys and because I was hanging out with the girls more, I was becoming more girly in ways. Because you kind of become what you hang out with, you know, your five closest friends, so to speak. You become like more like who you're hanging around with. Anyway, that's like by age 12. So the next couple of years, I'm just, that trajectory is not stopping. It's the only way I know how to live. It's the only life I knew, as it, as it is with every kid. Just really wanted to know where I belonged. Really wanted to know that I was loved and, and that I belonged. By age 15, I became sexually active with women, and then I got lots of validation from the male peers for that, but I longed for the intimacy and closeness with those male peers, and the girls were just kind of an escape from that. I escaped using the girls and also escaped using cross-gender fantasies. Now, fast forward to age 27, I'd finally crashed. So like basically, what about 12 years of like hard running? Years and years of running. I was a mess. By this point, I was addicted to porn, well, for a long time by then. 
I knew I had little self-control and all sorts of destructive habits. And unfortunately, these are destructive to other people because I was bringing other people into uh, my destruction. And my eccentricities were greater and greater because I had to run harder and harder from facing myself. And on the outside, people just thought, oh, that's just eccentric Hudson. I'm like, but the inside was, this was a manifestation of me trying to distract myself from facing the interior pain in my heart. And actually, ironically, here I am giving my first presentation in Regina. In 1992, I was in this very hall at my cousin's wedding reception, already thinking those thoughts. I remember that. I remember distinctly in here, in this very room that you guys are in, and wondering about these things to myself. So funny how that works. Anyway, after age 27, I kept hitting rock bottoms. It's a funny thing about rock bottoms. There's always another one, it seems. Um, But I knew I had to make changes in my life. But turning from my life patterns, which was basically about using people and using porn and using people and lusting and all that stuff, and trying to seek validation and affirmation from people, that's all I knew. And um, I wanted to change it, and so in my heart, I made the change. In my heart, I made the change, but it, like turning a jet, like, okay, you turn, but it takes a while for the turn to be made, you know? So the actions took a while to follow. Now, at age 27, I moved way up north, kind of uh, as north as like Flin Flon or Fort Mac, like that, that around there, like Siberia, I guess here is cold enough, but. My very first teaching gig, so I'm a school teacher here. Very small town, away from all the distractions. Went from Edmonton to a town of like 800, okay? So I had to face myself. There was nothing else to do, but one side was go to church, the other side was do a lot of drugs. Like there was really not much in the middle in that town, and I was like, well, obviously I'm not gonna go down the, the, the what, one road, the drugs road. Um, but I, I went to church, and I, that's when I got connected with these awesome Catholic people. But there, it, while I was up there, I mean, you're, you're isolated. You're 11 hours. I was 11 hours from my home. There's no airports, you know. This is, this is a, I couldn't just do a road trip to, to visit people that I knew cared about me. It was like being in the, the desert, so to speak, but very necessary. I remember mom and dad saying something like, we were really worried about you. You know, they thought it was a really rough year on me, and I changed. I changed when I was up there, but it was a good change because that's when God really, that's when... God, that's when I began to recognize that God was calling me to step out of the distract, disaster that I was in. He was always calling me to step out, but I just wouldn't listen. So I'll never forget, there I am in the middle of wherever I am, after some long porn bender and cross-dressing bender by myself, I'm looking at myself in the mirror thinking, who have I become? Who have I become? Like, And this was all... This was all self-medicating to me. I was distract, trying to distract myself. I knew I was running. And in my heart, I knew that God didn't knit me that way with that desire to run like that. I knew I was acting out of impulsivity. I mean, today I know that how I was created or authored by God is different than appetites and desires that we experience. But uh, back then, I did, that was just new. And just on that note real quick, like I, I totally acknowledge things like predispositions to things, but I know that predispositions due to intergenerational patterns and genetics do not equal like a manifestation of a particular appetite. And what I mean is kind of like, it's kind of like, uh, so out in the prairies here, like there's country music. Everyone loves country music, right? Okay. <laughs> no, exactly. So God, God gives us this desire to hear pleasing sounds. We, we become pleased when we hear beautiful sounds. That's all of us. What 
God doesn't author the particular desire for country music. Do you see the difference? Okay. So anyway, I just wanted to, that was an awareness that came over time. But in short, uh, I was up there looking at myself in the mirror, still cross-dressed at the time, and I was just crying out for help. The pain was becoming inescapable. And uh, so what's the deal with the hourglass here? Well, yeah, I was squandering time. But I just, I have this picture here. It reminded me of my mortality. I imagined like a little guy sliding down and falling through. And uh, I drew it once. And there's like bones and stuff at the bottom. And you're running out of time. That's what it's like when you're in the middle of an addiction or a compulsion. You just, you just know that the next time might be the last time because you don't know how long you're going to survive in that. The other reason I have this slide here is because at that point in my life, I had shunned photographs so badly because I was living in such shame. So I don't even know. There's hardly any photos of me. I couldn't find any between the ages of like, what, like 22 or 20 and 27. Nothing. I, didn't, I, I just was so roiled in, in shame. So this northern town that I'm in, I meet this awesome priest named Father Joseph. Gave me some amazing fatherly love and guidance. I said, every, every man needs that fatherly love and guidance. And I'm, don't get me wrong, I have an awesome dad and a loving and stable family. But there's just more to the picture than having a good dad. There's more things that influenced me than just my family. As you all know with your kids, right? there's so much stuff pounding into them, right? I was still wrestling with that desire to be accepted by my peers and whatnot. And it wasn't exactly just going to pick up the phone and be like, hey, dad, guess what? I'm just cross-dressed and addicted to porn. <laughs> like, uh, I don't, like just, that's not what a person does, right? Shame paralyzed me. And again, it wasn't it was shame because of attractions. It wasn't a shame because of transgender or because of cross-dressing. The shame was rooted in my simple like, lack of self-control and the fact that I was using people and that I, was, I, just, I just couldn't handle myself. I didn't feel like I had much confidence because I, had, I just didn't have self-control. And I was imposing that shame onto myself. And that brings me to the second thing here. Sometimes it's easy to make assumptions about people when someone says they're gay or they're trans. Like everybody loves it when assumptions are made about them, right? right? But uh, it's, I mean, you know, some people say, oh, there's an absent father or an overbearing mother. I mean, and, and in some cases that's true but not all. So you can't just make an assumption like that. It, it wouldn't have been applicable in my case. For me, there was the influence of pornography on sexual appetite through association and rewiring the brain, chasing the dragon, so to speak. You guys ever heard that phrase before? Chasing the dragon? Okay, historically, you know, they cook the drugs and then it, the smoke makes a little, the smoke looks like a little dragon in the air and you chase it with a straw to get high. The modern understanding of it is to re-get re the first high. So, so I, I, and I've talked to a lot of people who struggle with sex addiction. There's always a mapping to their very first sexual high that they're trying to re-experience. And I know that was part of, part of my story too. And that, that just, the, the, the porn road is a terrible road to go down. Um, and it's, I mean, it's repulsive, but I remember every step of it was trying to re reestablish that first high. But on that note, the pornography, when you're, when you're looking at that stuff, it's isolating, and it makes you less able to relate to other people because it's a one-way communication, right? So, I mean, it's just all sorts of things are adding up here. Um, the influence of social media uh, shaping my thoughts about myself and sexuality. And uh, this is one thought I had. You know, like, I was pretty formed in worldly ways, you know? Like, yeah, I went to church on Sunday. Okay, whoa, whoop-de-ding. That is not enough. It was not enough to fully shape me. 
Um, I was formed in worldly ways and I look back now, I just don't think it would have been reasonable to assume that I would some, somehow magically choose an otherworldly perspective in terms of sexuality when the rest of my life was connected to worldly, world, like fitting into the world. It didn't make sense. Beyond that, what about the influence of affirmation? Because like I was a kid who really desired validation. I was craving validation. And I was somehow connected to self-worth. And the list goes on, so many things. But the important thing is I was really blessed to encounter a group that did not make assumptions about me. Oh, same-sex attractions are part of my story. They didn't make automatically think that I lived some wild, particularly sexually involved life. The truth is, in my case, I never actually acted out. I got close. I remember searching something on Plenty of Fish and just trying to, you know, but then I was like, what am I doing? This is not what I want to do. But at that point in my life, I was so beat down by, by chasing girls to prove I was straight that I was, I was worn out. I was worn out of relational encounters. I was done by that point already. So I never, I never went the distance on that. But let's not make assumptions. And not making assumptions really kept the door open for continued walking together. So many, so many ways that we can, we can just listen instead of making assumptions. As for my parents, I needed to clarify all these things to them so they wouldn't feel miserable as though they failed, you know? I know that Satan would love that if they felt like they failed. And I had to make sure to be very gentle with my parents because I wanted to make sure that there was many other moving parts in the, the formation of how I came to be where I was. And of course, I don't think any parent wants to know that their child is addicted to anything, let alone the internet or pornography. And by the way, I only figured out I was addicted to pornography when I Google searched, am I addicted to the internet? And I looked at the traits for the internet addiction, and I realized all those applied to pornography for me. And I was like, this is nuts. I had no idea. And I was probably age 27 at the time, 28, 28 or 29. And I had already been addicted since I was like nine, nine, nine years old. I'll get to that later. I'm really happy that I met people that didn't make assumptions about me when they heard that I was working through my thoughts on being gay and trans. Because when people make assumptions, it just, it hurts. It's just people not listening, you know? So when you guys listen to people, that, that, that matters a lot. I've got a few things here. Reasons for people, people actions, people's actions. I've, I've had it to me, I, I, this is not really part of my story, but people who have gone down same-sex relationship roads and we talked, we've, we've walked towards Jesus together through listening and dialogue. And I've had people describe things to me, like I said, parent things, out of spite. People were mad at their dad and they've, they've dabbled and then they found out it felt good. I've had people who just outright recognize woundedness and people who have experienced severe trauma. I'm one of the third category, um, sexually abused. I'll talk about that later. But ultimately, in the, in the depths of my heart, this was all rooted in a desire to be loved, a deep desire to be loved. And anybody who's on that trajectory of, of, of just simply searching for the love that, you know, God authored us to, to love one another. And, and I get it. I understand that. You're trying to find love. But for me, there was also escapism. When I was saying I'm gay and trans and all that stuff, I was truly trying to make sense of myself and how my expectations of boy or girl didn't match what I felt. And uh, I was wrestling with the whole ideas of masculine and feminine, uh, thinking that, oh, well, you know, if I like boy things, then that makes me a boy. If I like girly things, it makes me a girl. Of course, like, we know that's not true. Like, I mean, what, a long time ago, what, a tomboy or like, n nobody cared. That, you just were a kid, you know? 
So I'm glad I was born then and not now. I don't know where I'd be if I was born now in this culture. I wasn't separating desired interests and activities from maleness and femaleness. So my first year teaching up north, I am visiting Father Joseph from the pulpit. And uh, from the pulpit, he shares with me that for the whole church, there's more for us to know about this topic. This is an actual picture of the church, by the way. Really uh, cool old school church there. But this, this gave me a, a window of hope because uh, up until that time, I'd never questioned anything. You know, can you imagine? We teach our we teach people to question everything, basically, like you know your food labels. This is fake news, da, da, da. but never on this one, never on this one. And it kind of, I was happy about this because I had a window of hope to kind of like maybe learn about myself, you know, and a little bit of self reflection is not a bad idea. So, but just before Father Joseph said, "There's more for us to know," I had come out to myself a third time already. And immediately after that third time that I came out, I was just soaking in fear and despair. Um, this, of course, is again after another porn banner, transgender porn, same-sex. This is awful stuff. And I was, I was shocked at how I was watching all this stuff. But it was just connected to my compulsion of escapism and, and lack of self-worth. But anyway, I was in fear of telling my parents, like, oh, I got to go come out now. So if anyone has ever felt that I do know what that feels like the fear of, of well how do I do this and the fear of, of that coming out it's not a good fear and so when when a when a kid comes out like I, in the depths of my heart I know that that kid made like a monumental leap to to their to the processing of their thoughts you know I I, I know that um I know that's a big big thing but but there's there's more to that story about what what that could look like and stuff but but uh, I, it's, it's important to, to listen to people. And uh, I was really grateful that I had those people up there listening to me while I was wrestling with this stuff. So I was coming out to myself because I was terrified of coming out to other people. But they still listened to me while I was walking through my thoughts. The other thing was the despair. I had a, this despair because um, as soon as I bought the idea that this is gay, this is who I am, or this is trans, or whatever it was at the time, it's like I, I, I bought into the idea that, well, this is it. You'll never be a husband or a father, you know. All those dreams you had about having a lovely family, your hopes, your hopes to be a husband and father are crushed forever. Today, I know that that's not true. I know that through the pursuit of holiness and, and fatherliness, growing, growing in father, fatherliness through, through our Lord Jesus Christ, I mean, who are we to judge that God couldn't um, bring something about? The first time I came out to myself, I was 11. Two years into using like the Zeller's flyer for porn, you never know what a little boy is going to get triggered by. I'm sure you guys have that stuff in all your houses. The lingerie page, it's like, it's like this much, that was it. Two years of using that stuff and then not getting high anymore, and I'm thinking to myself, well, the girls aren't turning me on anymore, I must be gay. I'm gay. That was the first time. The second time... I was molested by a guy in my teens that probably didn't help situation. It, it, it introduced some severe trust issues that I had. Um, and while, I, while this was going on, I was scared, but my body had a reaction. And it made me wonder, like, oh, my God, I, I am gay. Like, look what's going on in my body here, uh, even though I was scared. But anyway, I wanted to run from that. And so I just kept pushing away men. 
I mean, I still had people that I worked with, some guys that I worked with, and we go party and stuff, but that was different because the, the, all that stuff led me to was to to pick up girls and to do uh, very unchaste things to to escape. And that's that's my sexual escapism. I went into like overdrive after that incident of molestation. Father Joseph said there was there's more for us to learn. There is there was time. And it, it helped me kind of like delay coming out to my family. And um, this is an important part of my story because I didn't want to come out. As here I am talking about this. I wish I could have just buried this forever, right? I didn't want to come out. And this is the part that I learned after the fact, like I'm coming back to the faith that I want to like proclaim the love of Jesus Christ and like share my story. And then I find out that there's people who get like angry at me that I didn't want to come out. And it's like, all right, okay. Uh, even Catholics, they're angry at me that I didn't want to come out. That was the biggest surprise. Not liking me sharing what self-honesty looked like in my life. And um, I just, it was my story. And that was a hard thing to accept. It's like the people that I'm, I'm the faith that I'm learning to love again is also trying to say you you don't exist basically we can't share your story because you don't exist it was that was hard anyway i began to read as much as i could all sides of the story and it was it really helped me become drawn to take one more step beyond the comfort i really already knew now anyone who deals with trauma survivors knows that this is a big deal because you cannot draw a trauma survivor out of their cage they have to take the step so these Catholics who listened, actually listened, um, helped me gain the confidence to take that step. Uh, I initiated that step by God's grace, of course, showing his love through people like you, because I was so hardened by sin, I couldn't be talked out of my mindset. And I, I, again, I couldn't get talked out of my traumatic cage. But anyway, the ground was softened by people who really showed love, not smacking me on the head of the Bible, but showed love and listened. And with God walking me to something more, it helped me actually walk with others to even people I didn't exactly agree with. And that's, that's fine. That's important. Um, but at least we became pointed in the same direction, which was, which was really valuable. And that kind of decreased fighting and conflict and made some peace, which is really important. So I also came back through mathematics. A lot of people are like, what? How do you, math, faith, math? Oh, I mean, if our faith is true, I mean, math is true. There should be a collision somewhere. And um, the, the, the real truth of why I came back through mathematics is because my life was such a mess. The only thing left stable that I could count on was math. Because math doesn't change. It's true. It's true. So I just dove into that head first all through college. The world was saying that this is who you are. But I, in my, I knew in my heart that I could still choose how to see myself. It, what, like, you know, uh, oh, I'm a unicorn. Well, it's not true, but I mean, it is, I have the choice to call myself that. That's what I'm saying. And uh, that the attractions that I experience are not the same as how I choose to see myself. And I was able to capture that in a mathematical thing, and that finally made sense to me. And what, what, like, one is, cho one is not chosen, uh, the attractions or the appetites, and the other one is chosen, which is how I choose to see myself. And when I realized that this truism was not present in most of the stuff that I was reading online, it was very easy for me to reject pretty much all of it. Because I was like, well, if this basic truism isn't reflected in the language, then, then the, 
there's other things. It might like it. it pot, the fullness of truth could not possibly be revealed. And at that point in my life, I was so done living a lie of my own that I really was seeking to find the fullness of truth. And where I knew truth was inhibited, I wasn't going to go. So it made very easy. Uh, you know, I ended up finding this this distinction in Catholic Catholic writing, uh, which was I was very ha- I'm very happy about that, um, and also subsequently Orthodox writing too. But I was living a lie, and I wasn't going to sub my lie in for someone else's version of truth that didn't even clarify this kind of stuff. So I'm up north here, and the bishop asked me uh, if I had ever heard of courage. And I said no. And uh, courage, by the way, is a Vatican-approved ministry for people who experience same-sex attractions and who, and who desire to live chastely in accordance to the church teachings. So anyway, I'm like, no, what's that? And he's like, well, you know, check it out for me and uh, tell me what it's all about. And like as if he didn't know, right? So yeah, he was, I confessed to him a few times some things. Anyway, so here I was really pumped because I was like, all oh, right, I got to go down to some place in the USA and like, like be a fly on the wall like a spy, you know, you know, check this out, undercover and stuff. But after the first few days, I finally realized that I was around people who got me. There was people who understood my story of, of experiencing a similar experience. I had never felt like I was around people who could get that before. And it was such a blessing. It was such a blessing. I finally felt like I wasn't an outsider for the very first time. I felt like I belonged. And really my whole journey was about trying to find that belonging. It really was. Underneath the cross dressing, underneath the same, everything everything was about filling that hole of belonging. I feel like I didn't belong. And I finally felt understood and not alone. I mean, the Catholic men's group that I ran into initially was really good and helpful for that, but they couldn't, they, I, didn't, I didn't go there with, with, with them on this, you know? And on that note, real quick, like, I do see the unity now uh, with, you know, other Catholic men and women now because ultimately we're, we should be, well, I mean, we're striving for holiness and virtue, period, all of us. So we're really 1.1 billion strong on a unified journey. And the devil would be whispering in my ear saying, you're by yourself. No one loves you. You have to face this world alone. I know that's, that's not the truth. And maybe he doesn't sound like that, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, so again, courage. Just, it just, that's when I got introduced to the idea of chastity. And, and the time before I heard chastity, I was like, oh, yay, celibacy. That means I'm going to like... like is I have to white-knuckle my way through life, d- denying my deepest desires. And it took time for me to grow past that and figure out the true meaning of what that is. And I'll crack that open a little later. Because without that, without understanding chastity, I could never understand sexuality as a gift and understanding joy of giving a meaningful gift to the Lord. You know, when you give a gift that means something, you actually get more joy from it, right? I jo- I, when I go to the States, I give them ketchup chips. They don't know what they are. <laughs> They, they hate them, but I like them. And so when, when, when I, I joke, well, I'm like, yeah, like, if I give you a bag of ketchup chips, like, I like you. That's a nice gift. That, that makes me happy to give that because I do like them. It's not like black licorice. And, um, and then the question is, is my sexuality more important than a bag of chips, right? If I can experience joy giving a bag of chips that I like, then all the more joy I'm going to experience when I give the sexuality to the Lord, which is a far greater gift than a bag of chips. The bees. Yeah, I felt like the bee who found his beehive. Does anyone remember uh, the, mu- the music video No Rain by Blind Melon? 
some of you guys, okay, there's this little girl bumblebee and she's lost. And then at the end of the video, she finds her like all these bees jumping around in a field, people in bee suits, really. But anyway, so that's, that's the bees there, okay. So again, my, my journey was rooted largely on escapism and the pain and loneliness of feeling like I didn't belong. And that was so great. Uh, the pure rejection, not feeling good enough. And, and same-sex romantic attractions. I see now that was a longing for a friendship, uh, wanting what I, and wanting what I felt I lacked. And the same-sex sexual attractions I found later on, it was to do like with my lack of temperance, like my lack of self-control and my proclivity to feed the desires of lust. Now, in terms of desire and appetite, you know, there's two dogs battling out in the soul or two wolves or something like that. And in terms of desire, well, which of the wolves is going to win the battle? And the answer, of course, is, well, what's the answer? The one you feed. Right, exactly. And in terms of desire, it's the same way. I mean, when someone's trying to break free of McDonald's and they want to live healthy, it's the same thing. Once you get away from your, your appetite for a while, you feed yourself better things, you, 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 the appetites transform over, t- over time. So the wolf you feed is the wolf that wins in terms of desire. And I realized my particular desires were not authored and knit into me retrospectively, of course. And this is only after pursuing the virtue of chastity for a very long time. After pursuing, and we're talking like years, years, and healing relationships at the same time. Like, like I had a good Catholic men's group too that I was in when I, when I, when I was 30. So it was eight years ago. And, and just like learning to not be afraid and learning to what what is it what does it mean to be a man and, and being taking opportunities to grow in my faith to understand the true model of man in, in Christ first of all and secondly uh, Saint Joseph but over time in pursuing chastity same-sex romantic attractions same-sex sexual attractions and transgender inclinations all diminished and none of that was a goal of mine like I never set out to do that uh, it was a, a surprising after effect of pursuing holiness and virtue while also realizing that I'm, I am to be striving to grow in fatherliness, even if I'm not a father now, fatherliness. And of course, does it diminish for everybody? Probably not, but it did for me and, it, and for a lot of other people I know it also did. So it's just part of another one of the part of the fabric of the stories on this topic. So at the Courage Conference, Jesus really got to me for the first time, like in a good way, if something really gets to you. Jesus got to me for, uh, in a way that I will change my life. That sounds so cliche, doesn't it? Well, here you go. So there's an all-night adoration, and I'm there, and I'm way in the back, because God is inaccessible to me. I'm such a wretched sinner. I mean, I really was a wretched sinner, and I still am a wretched sinner, but I was more so a wretched sinner. But um, the... I just don't believe that, like, I'll keep God away, you know, because I know that he, if he saw, but I know he sees everything, but it's like, well, I still, I still, this illusion I could hide, you know, like Adam in the garden, right? I look over to my side, and there's this girl there, I uh, found that she's kind of like a college level, and something about her, she's just like radiant, radiant like the sun. I'm like, what is going on? It's just, it just, it was just, it was just beautiful, and just, and in, in that moment, I realized, or God made me wake up to the reality that that God comes to us. He was in her radiating radiating outwards. And I just had never seen that before. I'd never experienced that before. To me, adoration before, it was just like, oh, I'm going to sit here, you know, 
Okay. But that happened. And I remember desiring that so bad that, that Jesus could come to my heart. And in, in that, what I did is I took my backpack and I bundled it up and, and put it on the pew and I laid down in the pew. Uh, there was hardly anyone there. And uh, I, I invited, I consciously invited Jesus into my heart for I think would have been the very first time in my life. Like, not just, hey, I'm sitting there in adoration. Like, I was like, Jesus, like, please come into my heart. Like, I want you. I need you. I need, I need you. And uh, yeah, he responded all right. Yeah. Um, he immediately, at that request, at that plea from my heart, he immediately filled my heart from the inside with his light and just and his love and it just it just breathed me into like this the how do you describe how you can't put words on on our infinite God, you know what I mean? I was just so full of his love. So full of his love. And I laid down there on my backpack uh, with my pillow and it was as though God God the Father was sitting in that pew and he was kind of holding me with my head on his lap. Just kind of with his hand on my head, his hand on my head, like like a father would do with a little boy, just caressing, and God was caressing my heart over and over again. And um, the imagery I could imagine would be like, you know how like bread has a bunch of little holes in it, right? Bread, bread, you know, bread looks like bread, cheese. Um, and then you take like smooth peanut butter and just go, and like all the holes get filled in. And that was my heart getting filled in by God's love. If I had a more beautiful artistic way to say that, I would do that. Anyway, I knew God's love was real in that moment. And for me, I knew that God's love was for me. I'd never known that before. I just knew God was some abstract thing or whatever. I wasn't even sure if it was true, you know, but I knew it in my heart in a whole new way. I went from knowing about Christ to knowing Christ uh, as true. It didn't make me saintly or anything overnight, and still I have a lot of work to do. But, but I knew that life would never be the same, in a good way. So as for this slide, so I used to buy things for cross dressing in secret, of course, as much as I could, um, at the secondhand store. It's like a gold mine, and I was always in pursuit of my next best medication for my escapism. And then it got arranged it that I had have an encounter with him. A monstrance with a host. In the th second-hand store, this is what I actually found. I didn't just find the medication that I was looking for, but I found the best medication and also the divine physician himself. <laughs> and so one might think in another way, like, God really, you know, maybe has a sense of humor, but he came to me, like, right where I was in my place of familiarity, this was a little while after I had stopped buying stuff, but I still was in the cycle of going. He came to me in my familiar place. And that's kind of what God does, you know? Um, yeah, reach right where I was. All right, now that I've done the introduction, I can start the beginning of the talk. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> All right, I'm just kidding. So along the way, my heart was really lit aflame for love of Jesus Christ in many ways, through many encounters. And it was, it was, uh, it really lit a desire for me to turn from my attachments to the world and myself and instead to pursue him. I knew he was pursuing me and now I'm like, I need to pursue you back. I really desire that. It was never about switching from gay to straight. It was never about 
trying to trying to change from trans to straight. And I don't even call myself straight because it's just that domination of the whole label system that, that has been introduced and it totally pushes down the primary identity of being a beloved, a beloved child of God. That is my number one. It was always just about here to holiness, wherever I was. And along the way, this was big, is that it really, I really had my idea of holiness challenged too, because honestly, when I grew up, it was like, well, if you do Catholic-looking things, you're probably a holy dude, and that's it. And we know that it's not exactly true when there's, a, there's people who do Catholic-looking things that sometimes don't do good things, and they're not living a holy life. And uh, so I really had to measure that out and say, like, what am I doing? What am I doing? What am I following? And so I, I was just following my conscience. It drew me all sorts of places, actually. I won't get into that in this talk, but um, a, a lot of places that brought out some destruction. But it was just following what I thought was best. And who can be faulted for that? You know, we are called to follow our conscience. That's part of it. Um, but, but there's more. We have to form our conscience. And I wasn't doing that. I personally wasn't doing that at all. I wasn't uh, striving for the fullness of virtue. I was just striving to do what you know, kind of suited me. I called it my conscience, though. I wasn't striving to uphold the order of creation authored by God. I needed to come to understand that. I needed to understand that that's what I needed to do. I needed to understand the order of creation and un therefore understand holiness and sin in terms of a concrete reality, because I'm an analytical mind uh, that really helped me understand, well, is this action I'm doing going to help me grow in holiness or not? Is it countering the divine art of the divine artist? Without that, holiness and sin and all that stuff was just like a, a nice idea, or you know, it was, it was entirely subjective to my own thoughts and my own conscience, which ultimately amounted to my innermost desires and attachments, I'm sorry to say, but that's just where I was, and I made that my God. So anyway, by discovering sin in terms of a concrete standard, which is the, the, the eventual countering of what God has authored into creation, visibly and invisibly, I was able to gain a freedom there by understanding that culpability, my culpability, I know that God will measure out my culpability based on what I knew, you know? Because, I, I mean, like, we can't, like, I mean, he, God's mercy is very great. God's mercy is very great. So if we don't know something, he, he takes that into account. The flip side of that is that if we purposely, sorry, if we choose to not know things, we also might have that taken into account. So that's like, okay, that was kind of a game changer. So, but it brought great, great freedom because it meant that um, there, that I was, I was so terrified that that um, the full weight of of God would be fairly, justly measured out onto me, forgetting about His mercy because of the 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 life of sin that I had. Of course, thank God for the sacrament of confession and stuff like that. That was probably the biggest thing that brought me home, was the sacrament of reconciliation. So that was a freedom there. And But you see, like, I'm kind of drifting from like how you guys pastorally reached me and stuff. And now I'm talking about like learning things. This is two different things here. And I bring that up because there's a difference here. There's a pastoral response and an educational response. And it was, I was brought home because of a pastoral response, a loving pastoral response by people like you. But some, for some reason, God, God it inspired me through you guys to take steps to further educate myself about things. So it wasn't just 
You know, there was a cooperation involved, is what I'm saying. And um, I needed both of those, but but at the end of the day, you know, like it was it started with that pastoral outreach when you guys were the loving reason, the loving catalyst for me to take that extra step, especially out of my trauma cage, right? And um, in terms of the education thing, it's kind of like that milk before solid food thing. You know, you could do grade two before grade three, you do grade three before grade four, just gradual. It was never too overwhelming. And it was your love that enticed me to take these steps to desire more and pursue a greater degree of truth uh, on my own accord. So I'm really grateful for that. So in terms of the pastoral, I need to pull the bricks down over the trauma castle, the trauma castle that I built around myself. And, uh, and, and that, that, that desire to step out of those walls came because of the love and mercy shown by you guys. Now that is like straight out of a trauma textbook. You know, and I wonder, I just wonder how many people who have a story like mine experienced some trauma of some sort. And I don't know that percentage, but, but I, knew, I do know that I'm not alone. And I do know that trauma is not talked about in this conversation. So the educational side of thing also brought about clarifications about holiness and virtue. Yeah, I wanted to uphold the uh, God-authored order of creation, and sin was countering the God-authored order of creation. I had to walk into those myself. But I also brought up the clarification between chastity, celibacy, and abstinence. And real quick, because their books are written about these, I'll just be real quick. Chastity matters about the openness of my heart. Abstinence is my how I manage my behavior. And celibacy is a discipline. Got that? <laughs> but anyway, I realized I had to, I, it was about me opening my heart to God. Am I gonna do this or not? You know? Are you in or are you are you in or are you out? Or are you lukewarm? What would be more, better for God, you know? So anyway, back to the Courage Conference here. Um, I met someone who told me that our experiences matter. I'd never thought about that before. My experience matters. But then in February of 2009, in an educational conference of all places, an LGBTQ activist, like this guy's very high up in the scene, he's written policies that have kind of, we'll say, made things difficult for, for Christians in, uh, in particular provinces. He tells me, quote, environment plays a factor in the development of our attractions. This is after I'm talking to him after a seminar, kind of questioning why he just told 120 teachers that people are born this way. I'm like, everything that I've ever read about this doesn't exactly point to this. Uh, what are your thoughts? And that's what he said. Environment plays a factor in the development of our attractions. And of course, I was a little frustrated that he just was so cavalier to ignore that earlier. I never hear that spoken anywhere. But it did give me more hope. And because I have control over the environment that happened between my ears in terms of neuroplasticity and whatnot, and it really helped me realize that I'm, this means I don't have to be a helpless victim anymore. I can break out of this victim mentality that I totally, totally had at some point in my life. It helped me realize that my choices influenced my environment to some degree. And um, yeah, it was, it was this activist that pointed this out. Of all the people that you could, could imagine who would bring someone to Christ, it was, it was a a very anti-Catholic gay activist, so I guess God can use everybody. But yeah, he just invited me to do a little bit of reflection. And this was the same conference that I heard about neuroplasticity for the first time, which is basically like our brains are pliable. I mean, everybody knows this. If you, if you cut open the brain of someone who played the piano for 50 years, they're gonna have, the brain is going to show that they use that side of their motor skills and whatever versus someone who did not. Like There's evidence, like a muscle, sort of. But anyway, this activist of all people got, to, got me to reflect on my past. So uh, here's seven things real quick I'm going to go through about my past that kept bubbling up over years of prayer. 
So there's my awesome dad and I washing a car. Yeah. <clears throat> Bet you didn't think there'd be a topless pick, hey? Anyway. <clears throat> so number one, I learned to be second place. I got an older brother. Three years older, three years stronger. Guess who won when we played together? He did, right? So I learned second place. I, I came to believe that I did not belong in first place. I came to become more passive. I wanted a playmate, so I would let him win sometimes. Well, he would dominate me anyway. But I would, I would keep playing even though I was losing because it became comfortable and it would give me a chance to play. But the short story is anything that was associated with boy, I just assumed I wasn't good at. I wasn't good at boy things. I wasn't good at boy. I wasn't good at being a boy. My masculine confidence was already getting chiseled down right from there. The next thing, I lost my best friend when I was nine years old. He moved away quickly in the days before texting. But I remember crying for three days and thinking, I, I just didn't want to ever feel that pain ever again. So I began to build walls up and not, not allow myself to get close to people already. Not a good thing. The next one, I was exposed to porn by age nine. Again, it was more of a discovery in the magazine rack. And it wasn't a dirty magazine. It was like, like I said, a Zeller's Fly or something like that. That's all it was. And it uh, distracted me from the pain. It, it was like an escape. It was, and I, just, I sought out the isolation so I could be alone with my thoughts, if you know what I'm saying. And uh, that did not help me continue to grow and develop healthy relationships with anybody. And included in that anybody is the boys. So I also learned from a very young age that I had little self-control, which is also why I never ended up getting into hard drugs. My buddy asked me in grade eight, hey, you want to be an astronaut? I'm like, no, well, come drop some acid with me. I'm like, that's, that's, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard, but that's, that's what his proposal was. But I already knew that because I couldn't handle myself with, with pornography, if I ever touched any of that stuff, I would be done. I would be done. So maybe God can even use compulsions to point to he can use things, and he can use anything. I like girl things, okay? Well, I look back now and I see, well, the girl things were just a chance for me to not feel totally demoralized by the boy things that I was a failure at. Uh, well, anything boyish was a reminder that I was not good at boy. So I gravitated to the girl things naturally. Scary movie. In grade three, we watched a scary movie. And um, I remember cuddling into the chest of one of my male friends because this part was really scary. And, and I remember feeling that I liked that safety. I liked the feeling of safety in the arms of a male. So I'm already, that's in the mix too, already. Next one, hockey bullying. There was a lot of good guys, but there was a couple of real jerks. And I remember thinking to myself one day, like, if this is what being a boy is all about, like, I don't really want anything to do with it. I am so out of here. I don't want it. I don't want it. And then the last one is Valentine's Day. I think I was eight years old or so. But I was the kid who didn't get any Valentines. Told Charlie Brown on this one. <laughs> I got one from the teacher. Ooh, yeah. Ouch. But I remember, I remember like realizing that I didn't have any from the other kids. And the, the thought, I'm sitting there in my desk. I know exactly where I was when I thought this. And the question was, why doesn't anyone want to love me? What kid needs to think about that? So all these things are like percolating in my mind at the time here and all came to be at the invitation of this activist and it, that really began my healing because I was able to like identify things of why, why did I get to where I am today? A little bit of self-reflection, nothing wrong with that. And see, I had to become aware in my story, I had to become aware that there were wounds he to heal from. 
uh, before I could pursue healing. And I'm very careful about saying healing because when, when I thought I was just fine, when I was living out of control, I would have been, I would have rejected it. I would have got really mad if anyone suggested that kind of thing. So you just don't go say you need healing, right? The other thing is people are like, oh, what, you're going to heal from gay to straight? And it's just, people do not understand. It's just a bad idea to talk about what here I am right now telling you that I needed healing and I only could see that retrospectively. And uh, all of these things and my, these things that happened when I was little, they, uh, they were based on my expectations, which were formed by my childhood perceptions. And this was the big kicker. It's like my childhood perceptions. Okay, so a child, when I was a child, I did not have the brain of an adult. I know that brains develop at different, you know, like maturity rates and stuff like that. But um, I'll put it this way. Like when I was small around this age or a little younger even, I remember seeing a, a lone train car in the distance and telling my dad, hey, let's go. We're in a small town. We can walk there. I'd say, hey, let me go over there. I want to try and push this thing because it looks so tiny. That was my, that's where my brain was. That's the, kind of, that's the kind of reasoning I had. So we go there and I, I walk up to the train wheel. Lo and behold, the train wheel is still taller than me. Okay? So what do you think I do? I still tried to push it. That's how young I was. I wasn't just like I'm some older dumb kid. Okay, I was, I was really little here. But that's, that's the point is like, what other things is a child's brain and perceptions going to be a little off on? You know what I mean? How could my perceptions be even close to being trusted in terms of what is accurate and true? And we all know what's going on these days with things like that. But anyway, I had shame, and it was rooted so deep. And it was never from the church. It was, it was not from my family, but from me, knowing that I was a person of weak will, and I just didn't really have much for strength against these unchaste pursuits. Okay, so around age 28, 29, real quick, I fell to porn, no shock. Went to confession, went home, fell to porn again, went back to confession again, found the same priest again. But this time was different. Same priest, I explained a little bit more, but here's what he did. He pointed to Jesus Christ on the cross, and he said, look at his arms wide open for all of you, even the parts you want to hide. All of you, the fullness of you, the parts that you, you're too ashamed to show. I never thought of it before, but it was, it, was like, it was like I was too ashamed to give Christ my whole heart. It was, like, it was like this. It was like, this is me trying to hide from God. Okay, This is a real picture of my friend's daughter. Her honest attempt to hide. She's messing with her. You see? But that's us with God. That's us with God. You know? Like a child I hid. And I was, I was at this time, I was just, you know, this is, you know, I was 28 or whatever. I'm just learning to trust men again, let alone trust God. And this priest helped me know that the victory is in our turning back to Christ as soon as the time is possible. And also helped me reaffirm the idea that I was lovable. That Christ could love me even though... You know, I did all that stuff that I did. He still wanted to love me. And this is kind of some considerations that came up around that time. I was, I was able to depart from shame and self-hatred as a fruit of God's grace and people cooperating with him, showing that love to me. I knew that my choices mattered. And I was never made to feel ashamed by Catholics. Now it's bolded because it's, it's, there's two ways to read this. When I was trying to make sense of myself, I was never made to feel shame. I was made to feel shame when I tried sharing my story. And that was a really shocking thing. Now, like, like again, like I shouldn't be allowed to share my story because it, uh, whatever, I don't know. 
I, I, that was probably the most hurtful thing, the hurtful thing. Now, with the olive branches always extended, I knew it was safe. I never went back to anyone who helped me go down the dark roads that I found myself on. This is huge. There's a lot of people who's like, well, what is, what is, what is uh, with that word? Uh, what does accompaniment look like? Well, okay, well, um, the people that I know who have found Jesus, who have, who have decided to live chastely regardless of their lives, none of them have gone down to the people who affirmed them in ways of sin. None of them ever. These people stood for something instead of nothing, and they challenged me gently and lovingly, even though I still reject their challenges at times. I rejected them at the time. But they, I knew because they weren't silent, they weren't silent, I knew that, I knew that they weren't just, I couldn't mistake it for that uh, silent approval. The people that I did go back to, it's kind of like that road to Emmaus thing. The road to Emmaus thing is like, well, you know, you walk with someone, you, you, someone's going, they're going where they're going to go. And you can try to influence them to, to, take a, to divert the path, but at the end of the day, that person's still going to go where they're going to go. And so there was, there was enough people that helped me not walk into sin that I was able to continuously taste the joy of pursuing virtue and continuously taste the renewal of Jesus Christ and the sacrament of reconciliation. I was able to continue on that trajectory. And, and the dark side was always trying to pull me back Right, because the, the wolf and the battle and stuff, we're still battling it out. And I know that he's just around the corner all the time, the wolf of lust, all that kind of stuff. But I, I, don't, I don't want to go back to that. Retrospectively, I began to see that all that time that I was battling it out, it was, it was me rejecting the church. It was never the church rejecting me. That was a big thing. And the last little thing here is, is just that... It was, I just know that it was God that cracked me open and it was his love to heal those wounds. And uh, one real thing here, I found a profound restoration through my brother. That, you know, we played little, I mean, we, played, we played great, you know, it was good, but I was, it was the night before my very first flight and I thought I was going to die. You know, that's what you think about before your first flight. And um, I, ha- I was like, if I die, I've got so much pain on my soul that I just can't bear the thought of, I, can't, I just can't. And uh, here's what happened. So before this first flight, we just got chatting. It was just him and me at the kitchen, you know, at my parents' house. And it just burst. All the pain and woundedness of, of feeling not good enough just burst forth. I ended up, like, basically collapsing into his arms. He stood there. He, he, we, were standing, we were standing face to face, and he pulled me in, and I just bawled on him. And he held me. He held me up. My brother held me up and kind of gave me like the hug from like God that I needed, like Jesus, you know, it was like the, the man hug from God through my brother, propped me up and just allowed me to, to grieve the pain that was on my heart. And after that, I, it was one more confirmation that God's love is real because he was so present in that moment, even though my brother's shirt was covered in tears and snot and whatnot. That's a very true thing. So... In closing, God sprinkled those things into my life to reveal to me that I am lovable. And over time, people showed me that healthy, what healthy relationships looked like again and what the joy of pursuing chastity and giving our sexuality to the Lord could look like, the joy of that. And I was able to see that, seeing myself through Christ as his beloved little S son, and it helped me understand that I am man enough just because I'm his, not because of the people I know or or whatever, I'm mad enough because of, because of God.
And for me, the root became known. Like, I didn't want to be a man because I was so hurt by the men in the world. I didn't want to be a man because of the perception of my childish perception of man things. And I struggled to relate men because of my choices to isolate and trust. There was just so many things, all thanks to that gay activist that I helped break open. So, I mean, there's lots of things, but like, the ultimate thing is that I came to realize that of all this pursuit of belonging to be chosen, it really was God who chose me first. And just immersing me in his mercy made me go from this. By the way, like, you know, I remember fighting nature. is like, you, know, you can't win nature. But I went from this back to that childhood innocence that I knew God started me with. And through that, through that, I'm here and I'm sharing my story to hopefully praise God with that. So there you go.